Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. This is the word of God. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. All right, dear Father, we thank you that we can be here this morning in front of you, um, viewed as a new self. Uh, When you see us, you see your son. We don't deserve that. That's not the reputation that we earned or what we brought about ourselves. Yet you are a God of mercy and grace. So help us to renew our minds that we might live a life worthy of your calling. Amen. Please be seated. So I'm curious, by a show of hands, how many people here are familiar with the book um, Beezus and Ramona, or the Ramona series? Okay, good. So a lot of you will know what I'm talking about. So I think um, the author, Beverly Cleary, has a real gift in highlighting how children view the world, how they see things, how they interact with each other, what they tend to talk about, the things that they value. And one memorable example of this is uh, she describes the school children comparing calluses. And it would show on their hands. And so whoever had the biggest calluses was viewed as best on the playground. And so Ramona had made the observation that those, the children that lived closest to the playground would have the bigger calluses in general. And so there was this boy who had the biggest calluses of all, and uh, they would call him Yard Ape, which he wore with honor. It was, it was a great thing. And although this book was written in 1995, I think that it's still universally true that children compare calluses even today. Um, I remember valuing size of calluses when I was a kid, and my girls have done the same, either showing me or my wife or their friends after we go climbing. And your children do it too. Uh, Several of your kids have shown me from Sunday school when they're out on the playground showing their calluses off. Um, And you may get a chance to see it, too, if you hang out on the playground. But um, I have an advantage, usually, to be able to to have instant street cred in the elementary school hallways because of rock climbing as well. And I just realized I've never tried this before using my computer, which just turned off right now. So this will be interesting. I think it's got a sleep function on it. But I had, I had tested this before, so I'm going to log back in here. Go figure. Sorry. I'm going to have to move this Bible over here because I think it's pushing it down. 
Okay, we're back. All right. Oh, shoot. I may have to hold it. Good thing about these being recorded is you guys can delete this time off, right? I hope. <laughs> so, okay. We're just going to do this. So. All right. Um, anyway, so now about that. I was curious how many of you all had looked at your calluses while I was talking. Hopefully that gave you a little bit of time there. So our passage this morning is going to describe a callus that nobody wants at all. It's not one that's cool to compare to others. And like other calluses, though, it does form from repetitive action. Uh, this is one that's not from a jungle gym. It's not one that's from woodworking, but it's one that's caused by repeated sin, and it forms on the heart. And many people have this and can't see it, but it's deadly. And the only way to spiritually survive it is by heart surgery. And so this morning, we're going to be in the practical part of Ephesians. We've been there for a few weeks now, and certainly the entire book is edifying, instructive, it reforms our life. Uh, but there is a shift from theological principles to practicalities that we see moving from chapter 3 to chapter 4, a, mover, a movement from doctrine to conduct. And so verse 1 of chapter 4 gives believers a charge that the rest of the letter unpacks. And Paul writes in verse 1, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This comes after all of the doctrines have been expounded on in uh, chapters 1 through 3, and now Paul is expecting us to apply our beliefs to our behavior. So putting uh, principles into practice now, and, and we see that in communal unity and also in personal purity. So first half of chapter 4 is on unity, and that's how we ought to relate to each other. It's about using your gifts to build up the body. It's about relationships in general. And now, starting in verse 17, we're going to see a focus on purity, on personal holiness, how an individual ought to not walk, and how they should walk to have a worthy conduct in their life. So he starts by addressing a dire condition, people who are alienated from God. And this is something that is caused by a calloused heart. And being lost in darkness and bondage to sin. And this is a serious condition. It's one that needs divine intervention for redemption. But it's also for believers to be warned of. For the redeemed, there is a danger to regress back to former ways. There's a danger to go back to old habits to let those take root again, for, influence, for our thinking to be influenced, for our mind to be clouded. So tune in as we listen to this passage here. We're going to go through uh, verse by verse and then summarize the overall meanings uh, and draw out some principles, and then we'll make connections to application. So I organized the bulletin outline here uh, somewhat thematically or analytically. We have a section for notes, and then a section for principles, and then a section for the uh, applications. This is kind of mirroring the approach for just preparation. And I thought it was a little funny, the difference between Paul Scrabeck and I. Uh, this week, I'm giving you a worksheet. I think last week give you a picture. Um, for some of you, it doesn't matter. It doesn't make a difference because your kid already took your outline and drew on it and crumpled it. But um, our passage exhorts believers to walk worthily in personal purity, largely by resisting the former ways of the flesh and living by renewed ways of the spirit. And starting in verse 17, Paul begins his warning to the believers by writing, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
So the Ephesian must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, meaning they must not have conduct resembling that of Gentiles. But the Ephesians are Gentiles. So what does Paul mean here? As you probably know, Gentiles is used synonymously with unbelievers or pagans, who they once were. And Paul describes that manner of walking that we should not emulate in verses 18 and 19. It says, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul is describing people that are darkened, hardened, and unaware of their sin. And so what is the source of this problem? How did they get here? Like any spiritual problem, it can be traced back to sin. But in this example, where we sometimes see Paul give a vice list, just a whole host of different kinds of sins, Paul's not naming any specific dominant sin here, but instead just a surrender to sin in general. The word given themselves up means to hand over, to deliver over, or to betray. It's the same word that uh, Judas, or that was used of Judas, betraying Jesus. So these people have betrayed themselves to sin. Not just uh, sin in general, but unrestrained pleasure-seeking. The word for sensuality, it's alsigia, um, refers to licentiousness and wantonness. And for those whose vocabulary is as limited as mine is, this means reckless freedom that lacks any boundary or any control. It's a complete disregard for rules or moral restraint, especially in the sexual realm. And as Paul explains, they've been subscribed to licentiousness, not just sexually, but greedy to practice every impurity. That's a desire to have more of whatever experience. More possessions, more drinking, more sex, more power, more violence, more abuse, more idolatry, more profanity, more gossip, just more impurity. John MacArthur described these people as exhibiting unbridled self-indulgence and undisciplined obscenity. And so what's the consequence to betraying oneself to unrestrained sensuality? It says, a calloused heart. And that's what happens to a heart given over to sin. That's our first principle. Repeated sin deadens the conscience. Repeated sin deadens the conscience. Now, we all know the uncomfortable feeling of conviction. Either there's something that you should do that you don't want to, or there's something you want to do that you ought not to. And I suspect that most of us here can readily think of times when you've purposely pushed that feeling down, when you've brushed it aside, swiped it away. Well, swiping and brushing are going to form a callus on your heart. And the word translated callus means to cease feeling pain, to be past feeling, to be past caring, indifferent to the truth, indifferent to shame, indifferent to justice, indifferent to right or wrong. And it's not the same as spiritual blindness. This is different. A callous condition is self-inflicted. Being calloused is still being able to see, but just not caring. And note that verse 19 says, they have become callous. This is a process. It's not an instantaneous development. It's not an original condition. But this is something that they develop themselves. And while we might think today of the heart as the source of emotion, in Jewish thought, the heart was the control center or your command center to a person's being. 
So a calloused heart in that regard would lead to corrupted values, which would lead to a distorted worldview and ultimately to a clouded mind or futile thinking. A callous conscience cannot be convicted. You can't prick a stony heart. And so this lack of correction, this inability to care, leads to ignorance. No longer being instructed by the internal moral law given to us by God results in a darkened mind. And we see Paul, he makes a similar remark of the Romans in his letter to them in chapter 1, verse 21. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Ignoring God, not heeding his call, not listening to correction or conviction, that will lead to futile thinking. An inability to think clearly results in an inability to live morally. And that's our second principle. Thinking informs character. Your thinking will inform your character. So to summarize this developmental sequence of how they got to where they are, a routine surrender to sin will harden your heart, making you morally ignorant, which will cut you off from God's presence, ensuring that your understanding is darkened. Then it's impossible to live rightly, because it's ultimately impossible, even undesirable, to want to live rightly if you can't think rightly. So now, to make sure that we don't just relegate this only to unbelievers, only to those that are alienated from God, let's remember this is written as a warning to believers, a warning to no longer do this. Paul's insisting, and he's backing it up with the Lord's authority, that they can't do this anymore. So either the believers were still engaged to some degree, or at least were battling significant temptations to re-engage in former ways. And although this description is about other people, it's formally who they were. And this isn't a subtle temptation for them. Many of them were new converts out of paganism and such practices, and they had frequent reminders, just walking by places, visual reminders and physical triggers uh, where they had seen you know, temple rituals, participated in um, sexual acts, all types of depravity, just snares being able to pull them back to their former way of life. And so this description of who they used to be It applies actually to everyone, according to Ephesians 2, verse 3. Uh, Paul even includes himself in that. He says, all of us. And it says, the rest of mankind. So if it includes Paul and all of mankind, then it certainly includes me and certainly includes you. And so this mankind's former state, this shared state of spiritual deadness, involves following sin, following Satan, following the world, and following passions. And so if you're a believer this morning, that was you, but no longer. You have been made new, given a heart of flesh and a renewed mind. So Paul describes in verses 20 through 21 how this transformation came about. So reading from 20. But that is not the way that you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Verses 17 through 19 spoke in the negative about what to avoid when walking worthily. And now we transition to the affirmative about what a worthy walk does look like. And as we see in verses 20 and 21, this walk is centered around Christ and around truth. The term learning Christ, it's it's unique. It actually doesn't appear anywhere else in the Greek Bible. Um, And it has the idea of learning a person 
rather than learning information about that person. So this does not mean to learn about Christ. It means to literally learn Christ himself. And the phrase that you have heard about him is actually a a poor translation for this. Um, There's no preposition in the Greek, and most literal, literal translations are correct, and they're saying, you have heard him. There's no about, no from, but just you have heard him. And so why do these details matter? What does that mean to us? I think uh, commentator Boyce responds to that saying, it means that Christians are Christians because they have entered into a personal relationship with the living Lord Jesus Christ. This is a learning that changes at the deepest possible level. And that's our third principle. Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. Christianity is not primarily about learning rituals, facts, or systems, although there's some of that. But it is first and foremost about learning a person. And learning Christ indicates an experiential learning, familiarity that's based on a personal relationship with him. So not knowledge about him or his teaching, but knowing him himself. Another detail that I want to draw attention to here is that this relationship does involve the process of learning It's rooted in knowledge. It's learned. It's not felt. It's rooted in truth, not desire. And that's very different from what we see in 17 through 19. Feelings are subjective. They're impulsive. A a person can be betrayed to their feelings. A person that's locked into sensuality flounders in the feelings of the moment, whereas a person that is learning Christ is committed to a solid anchor and firm truth. So following Jesus, it's not a natural outcome to what one would get when they're following themselves. He's not one of many options, but the only option. And Jesus, he embodies truth. And often this truth is an alarming wake-up call to our need for redemption and repentance. And that's our fourth principle, that real change is rooted in simple truth. Real change is rooted in simple truth. Our faith and our identity are rooted in simple and straightforward truths. Core truths about God, core truths about man that have not changed for millennia, that span all history and all culture. We don't subscribe to a faith of emotion or a new age enlightenment nor clever intellectualism, but just a plain recognition of reality. The same simple reality that grabbed a hold of some fishermen that turned the world upside down 2,000 years ago. So I want you to hear this clearly. Our confused culture does not need clever, complex arguments from Christianity, but plain and powerful communication of simple, timeless truths. So I'll read that again. Our confused culture does not need clever and complex arguments from Christianity, but plain and powerful communication of simple, timeless truths. Knowing Christ And knowing the truth will deeply change a person. That's the only thing that will truly change them. And so Jesus says, If you abide in my word and you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's being set free from slavery to sin. It's also being set free from slavery to self. And we see this in the new identity that's given us in verses 22 through 24. So let's read those. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
So we've seen the old self in verses 17 through 19, self-centered, calloused, and a stony heart. But the new self is entirely different. The word new is kainos, which it doesn't mean renovated or improved. It means entirely new, brand new, something different. And this is a God-given identity, one that's rooted in truth and righteousness, rooted in Christ, not ourselves. We're to remove ourselves and to put on him. So Paul gives this imagery of laying aside, putting aside, removing our old, worn, and dirty clothing to put on new, clean clothing from him. So accept, you need to accept that this clothing transforms the entire being and redefines ourself, changes the heart. And God promised that he would do this. He promised it to Israel in Ezekiel 36, uh, verse 26. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. This change of heart, this change of self, the command center, it creates a change in your behavior. A new identity leads to a new walk, which is our fifth principle. Identity directs behavior. Your identity will direct your behavior. MacArthur summarized this overall change in our passage, remarking that the new walk in Christ is the exact opposite of the old walk of the flesh. Whereas the old is self-centered and futile, the new is Christ-centered and purposeful. Whereas the old is ignorant of God's truth, the new knows and understands it. Whereas the old is morally and spiritually callous and shameless, the new is sensitive to every sort of sin. Whereas the old is depraved in its thinking, the new is renewed. These are completely opposite identities. And for those who have fully trusted in Christ, you know from experience that while this identity change is instantaneous, the changed walk is not. And that's the reason that Paul's writing. If reformed behavior was automatic, Paul would not have needed to write the Ephesians' this letter to no longer write or to no longer walk as they formerly did. He would not need to remind them of their identity. He would not have to exhort them to renew their minds. But that's our sixth principle, is that believers experience instantaneous justification with ongoing sanctification. Instantaneous justification with ongoing sanctification. That change in identity, the receipt of a new heart, was instantaneous. And thank God it was. To be justified in a moment before God. But the retraining of habits, the reformation of behavior, the renewal of the mind, that's all ongoing. And I actually learned from this that the, um, that's actually reflected in the tense of the verbs in our passage. The verb put off is a verb in the aorist tense with middle voice, which meant nothing to me a week ago. But I learned that that conveys a singular action uh, occurred in the past, done to oneself, without any remark on continuation or completion. It's past tense, but open-ended. Whereas to be renewed is present tense with middle voice, ongoing, done to yourself. And then put on the new self is also aorist tense with middle voice, so also past, open-ended, done to oneself. So here's the point. This exchange in identity has already happened, but in an unfinished manner. If you're a new believer, your old self is already removed, and your new self is already put on, but the work is incomplete and involves an ongoing renewal of the mind. So before we pivot to application, I want to wrap up our, our expositional section with a paraphrase that I wrote of the passage that I think captures it. 
You must not act like the unbelieving and licentious people you once were. You were ignorant to the truth and unable to feel conviction, mired in sin, but no longer. You have learned Christ and seen the light. Believer, you must continually renew your mind, having forsaken your old corrupted self and embraced your new sanctified self. So with that summary before us, we're going to take our six principles and go into our three applications as shown in your outline. Know the truth, testify to the truth in culture, and testify to the truth in yourself. So our first application is to know the truth. You can't apply what you don't know either to yourself or to the culture, so you need to know the truth. Now, we typically think of knowing the truth as studying the Bible, and that's certainly a primary method, but it doesn't stop there. As our passage indicates, the truth is a person. Knowing the truth is knowing Christ himself. Jesus said of himself, I'm the way and the truth and the life. So when we learn the truth, we learn him, not just about him. So imagine if your child asked you that they wanted to learn to play the piano. So you get them a book about the piano, about music history. You watch videos of others playing the piano. You show them a diagram. This is how a piano works. But you never sit down to play the piano. I mean, that would be ridiculous. But sometimes that's a little bit of how we approach God. We read books about him, listen to messages about him, hold discussions about him. But how many of us personally seek him on a regular basis? And what would that look like? Well, prayer is one component. Prayer brings about change in us more than in anything else. It often brings peace to our soul and clarity to our mind, not always in what to do, but certainly in what to value. The challenge is that regular, faithful prayer is hard, partially because of prioritizing time, partially because of finding a a space without distraction. But I think if we're honest with ourselves and with each other, some of us would say it's because prayer can be boring sometimes. Many find prayer to be repetitious, with similar content and focus, or lack of focus, perhaps. And that's been a regular struggle for me in the past. And we know God places a high value on prayer. Certainly, he didn't design for it to be boring. So what's wrong there? Well, I learned some things that significantly changed how I prayed. And while there's still significant room for improvement, especially in frequency, I can say that I no longer find prayer boring. Because time is limited, and I think someone else wrote this way better than I can summarize it, I would just ask you to Google a simple solution to a boring prayer life. So if you can relate to that, that's an article that Crossway released earlier this month, and it's titled A Simple Solution to a Boring Prayer Life. I thought it had great applications there. The other primary method of knowing Jesus is knowing the Word. Studying the Word for your own soul, not because you're prepping for something like home group Or teaching Sunday school, though those are great things. Not because you're cranking through reading the Bible in a year, though there's huge value to that. But for the express purpose of coming to the Word so that you can know Jesus better. And as John 1 reminds us, Jesus is the Word. He's the Logos, the message, gospel. He's the message that became flesh, and we can know him. So knowing Scripture will certainly help you know God. However, it is possible and at times easy to gain knowledge from Scripture without actually growing closer to God or to Jesus. I think there's a way to study analytically, a way to study thematically, a way to study broadly, and a way to study devotionally. And each of them have their own value. And I think that Bible churches do a good job emphasizing the need to know your Bible, the need to know truth, the need to be able to defend your beliefs, defend your faith, but also to know your Lord. 
to know Christ himself on an individual level. And it's not necessarily what you read, but it's how you read. With an open heart that's inclined for personal instruction, where you create space to actually hear from and not just power through. And this may seem like a subtle difference in approach, but for those who regularly pursue Christ personally, it's not a subtle difference in the outcome. And commentator Boyce described his own experience, saying, You read the Bible or hear the word of God preached, and suddenly, sometimes quite unexpectedly, you are aware that Jesus is talking to you personally. This is not mere subjectivity. It is supernatural, for Jesus does speak. He speaks to change the life of his thinking people. And the last comment I had on this first section is that Christ is still alive today. The Bible's not just a biography of important dead people. This is a living message from our current creator and savior who can see us this morning. And although the Bible recounts stories and messages from millennia ago, the same God is still accessible today, displaying his attributes through creation and through his daily mercies. And let's not forget that he has given us believers his own spirit to better know him. We can know his character through our own life experiences interpreted through biblical principles. Now, once we know the truth, we need to testify to it. And that's our second application, testifying to truth and culture. Now, we see in verses 17 through 19 the desperate need for truth in the world and what happens to a world without truth. And then we see in verses 20 through 24 the impact, the radical transformation of that truth. So truth is the source. It's the beacon of light in a dark and stormy world. It is the duty of believers as ambassadors for Christ to be able to hold out that light and to pray that God would allow people to see it. This means that we need to make sure that we aren't silently avoiding conflict, but it also means that we better be standing for issues of truth and not just matters of personal preference. The most transformative truth that a person can hear is the gospel, to be assured that they are indeed a sinner, that they are not a good person, and that there are such things as absolute truth, as right and wrong. This is very different from our culture of you do you or choose your own path. And although that sounds sympathetic on the surface, that just is a lie that leads to pain and futility and lostness. So the harsh wake-up call, it really is a harsh wake-up call when we think of facing God's wrath, but that brings a much-needed reality check that sets us back on track. People do need to be told that they're sinners. It's uncomfortable, but it's true, and they need Jesus as a Savior. And while the gospel is the essential truth, our culture is at a place right now where really any truth is under attack. Even the idea of truth itself is under attack. And you can't have the gospel without the concept of absolute truth. You remove the concept of absolute truth, now you have no benchmark. So part of Satan's strategy has been a large-scale assault against really any basic assumed truth, such that the concept of truth itself is quite questionable, or at least subjective in many's minds. I think that Satan's strategy uh, favors eroding those truths, those core truths that are rooted in creation order. So long ago, he targeted worshiping the creation over the creator. And then there's things like homosexuality. That's an ancient sin. But only in recent decades have I really observed in our culture it being celebrated. Infanticide is nothing new. That's an ancient pagan ritual. 
But today our culture seeks to justify it intellectually by dehumanizing God's creation. And in recent years, things that would seem straightforward like gender has been expanded from two to 64 types. I mean, if that's not futile thinking and darkened understanding, then I don't really know what is. In a pursuit of unrestrained license to sexual sin, our culture seeks not only to disregard traditional morality, but to vilify it. Biblical values are scorned. They're called oppressive. I was actually on a call on Monday earlier this week listening in on a a Senate hearing, and a woman came against the pro-life movement calling it part of the heteropatriarchal corruption in society. Sounds fancy. This free license to sin is often couched in fancy terms to hide the base evil that's behind it. And I think this is just futility disguised in new terminology. Invented phrases like gender fluidity, non-binary, it sounds intellectual at the surface, but they're just fancy words for ridiculous claims that even children see through. And in an effort to protect and condone sexual depravity, the natural extensions of this logic really become depressingly comical. So during that same Senate hearing, one of the ladies continued to refer to pregnant people or people with a uterus. She would not use the word mother. And we see that even a SCOTUS nominee can't define a woman. I mean, this is where our culture goes when you extend this logic. A few weeks ago, I learned a new term for a non-binary person that gets married because they're neither male nor female. They're not a groom or a bride. So they go by the term broom. And, I mean, this kind of logic has sweeping implications. So. So. But, I mean, really, these, these newfangled terms, I think, are just lipstick on a pig. And it's sometimes you can't help but laugh at the linguistical gymnastics, but it's seriously concerning for two reasons. First, I think our culture is on a train that's rapidly approaching a cliff with some of this. Second, these are real people with real souls that are in serious jeopardy. And we can't forget that. So I think we should be concerned for our culture as a whole, but also for the individual broken people that are left in the wake of it. So a culture telling a boy that he really could be a girl or maybe 60-some other options, that does not create fulfillment. It creates confusion doesn't create security or purpose. It creates lostness. And so a male swimmer competing as trans in order to break new records, you get a trophy out of that, but you also buy into a lie and you lose a part of yourself. And I'm not calling us to be culture warriors here, but I am asking each of us to consider two things. Can we consistently stand in defense of biblical truth? And second, Can we each pray for broken individuals that we do now? So regarding standing in defense of biblical truth, I think that there's some that are called to be on the offense, but I think everyone is called to be on the defense. You don't have to seek out confrontation. You don't have to go and insert yourself. But I don't think you can stay silent for speaking truth, unwelcome truths. I think when God-fearing people stay silent is when society loses the moral compass. And so it's your coworkers that need to hear from you. It's your neighbors that need to hear from you. Those parents that are on your kids' sports teams, they're the ones that want to hear from you, not some podcast. 
And I'm not advocating for being unbecoming or antagonistic, but just to kindly and confidently provide a biblical perspective when a cultural topic is already being discussed. You don't have to come out, go out of your way and make up these topics, but if you're given a voice, then use it. And I don't think there's really any shortage of opportunities to defend biblical truth when we often hear about abortion, gender identity, sexuality, diversity and inclusion, intersectionality, plenty of options to defend a biblical mindset. And although mainstream media and the loudest voices really assume that any thinking person is going to agree with this progressive agenda, there are a lot of people that are confused by this messaging, and they're shocked by the pace of change. Many people are contemplating getting off this train, but it's a scary thought. There's ostracism with that. Our family was actually just talking about this yesterday because I was mentioning to my wife that NBC actually airbrushed some of the pictures of the trans uh, swimmer to make them look more feminine. So my daughters were asking, why would anyone do that? Why would anyone even want that? Why would someone uh, you know, buy into that? These are my older girls. And we concluded that there's a strong parallel between our culture and the emperor's new clothing. I think the people of the kingdom, they were told that only stupid people can't see those clothes, right? And so everyone went along with it, fearing that societal judgment. And I think that our culture has come up with such a tremendous pressure, societal pressure, where people are afraid to even ask the questions. But it's only the truth that will set people free from that pressure and from futile thinking. And we have that truth. The last point about truth in our culture is that the ultimate response is truly in God's court. We can come in and shine a light into a dark room, but it's going to do nothing for a blind man. God first has to open the eyes of the blind man to be able to see the truth. And these people are described in verses 17 through 19. They're all around us. These are real people, truly alienated from God. And this is a dire and depressing condition. So I'll paraphrase some helpful advice from Boyce to believers in our culture today. He says, if prayer for the world seems overwhelming, then pray for specific people who need their eyes opened. I cannot tell you whether God will save that friend, but I know that the Bible encourages us to pray and tells us that when we do not receive, or that we do not receive because we do not ask. And I know that historically, every great movement of the Spirit of God in what we call revival has been preceded by a long period of fervent, burdened prayer. So in short, our role is to testify to truth and culture by holding out the light and praying that God allows people to see it. That brings us to our last application, to testify to truth in yourself. And this last section speaks to those who have fully trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But if that's something that you have not yet done, then the only application this morning for you is to surrender your life to Jesus now and submit to his saving leadership. The only truth that you need to hear is that that dire reality I've described applies to you and that you are a sinner in need of rescue from the wrath of a holy and a mighty God and that you can do nothing to save yourself. And that's the way that God designed it. Instead, he wants you to trust wholly in what his son has already done for you. If you'd like to learn more about that after the service, just talk to me or one of the members. You'll get something much more than a free lunch out of it. Now, for believers who have fully trusted in Jesus for months or years or decades, perhaps, the application for you is to testify to yourself the truth of who you already are. 
recalling that the exchanging of the old self for the new self has already happened. Paul is not commanding that they do this now, but he's explaining to them what they had already been taught and should have already done. The old self has already been removed. That's not you anymore. Being righteous and holy is not a future hope. It's a present reality. So if you're a believer, you are not a redeemed sinner, but a redeemed saint. Actually, there's nowhere in the Bible where a believer is referred to as a sinner after conversion. All references to sinner with associated with believers is in reference to a former condition. When you surrendered to Christ, the new self was put on, along with Christ's righteousness. So when God sees you, he sees his son clothing you. I mean, this is an incredibly important concept for believers to live out. In the time frame of our identity exchange, it's critical in how it affects our thinking. And our thinking informs our behavior. Now, there's a fundamental difference in how a believer reforms their character between a person that is striving to be who they could never be in this life versus a person desiring to align their behavior with who they already are. A new perspective accompanies fully embracing who God says that you are. To know that you are righteous and restored right now and not awaiting a future self, that will motivate you to act in accordance with your current identity. You won't be striving to attain some future ideal and an earthly impracticality. Instead, you'll focus on properly aligning your behavior to be congruent with who God says you are. And we know that we've been made free, set free already, from bondage to sin and transferred out of the domain of darkness. Victory over sin is an option on the table. How often we take it is a different matter, but you've been given the power, the spirit, and the heart and a mind to be able to walk worthily. Now, some are probably thinking, it sure doesn't feel that way. And I'll agree that it doesn't feel that way, but we've received a new heart, not a new body. Similar to an amputee that can still feel phantom pains or a desire to itch or remove the limb, our old self still lingers. And I think it was Rick that had used the analogy of a believe, becoming a believer is like installing new software on old hardware. We have the same hardware, the same flesh, the same habits and neural pathways from addictions and habitual sin. These desires, they don't leave, but we've been given a new operating system a new software that can help us remove that malware from the previous user. So there's an already not yet component to our salvation. Already justified, already made righteous with the new spirit, but not yet redeemed in practice. Still in the same world, still in the same body with the same desires. And we're in good company with this. Even the Apostle Paul is in the same boat as us. In Romans 7, he described the battle between the spirit and the flesh. In verses 18 and 19 saying... For I, know nothing that, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And in verse 25, he concludes saying, So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And if you can't relate to the struggle, that should probably cause you to question the confidence of your salvation, because the struggle comes with the territory. This will be a daily battle unto death, and our primary strategy is in verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. 
And I'll borrow an illustration from Neil Anderson about renewing the mind. He says to imagine that your mind is like a cup of coffee, although I know most people like coffee, I don't, so it's easier for me. But the coffee is supposed to be filth and sin that has come in before Christ. At salvation, you don't get to simply just dump this coffee out, right? You don't get to empty your mind. You can't erase memories and habits, but you can renew your mind and set it on things above. So you do this by gradually adding teaspoons of clear water to displace the increasingly diluted coffee. And over time, the water becomes less brown and more clear. But this is a slow process requiring faithful, repeated additions of clear inputs. It's not a few-step process that can be accelerated. So renewing your mind is not about draining it of past content, but displacing fleshly thoughts with godly thoughts. And as as we've already discussed in our first application, renewing your mind involves studying, reading God's word, asking that the Holy Spirit would continue his renewing work in you. And God's thoughts stem from God's word and prayerful meditation. And because we need daily renewal, that means we need daily intake and daily Bible reading, applying the truth to ourselves daily. Sometimes regularly applying truth is in the affirmative in terms of adding godly content. Other times it's in the negative in terms of countering sin, countering deceit, calling a lie as it is, as a lie. Our mind is quick to justify and rationalize sin. So we need simple reminders and clear reminders of truth. Regarding lust, it is a lie. It will not satisfy. Regarding gossip, you're hurting them. You're not expressing concern. Regarding theft, you're cheating your employer and ultimately God if you bill personal time, no matter how lax your coworkers or boss are. Regarding a grudge, it's one thing to be cautious, but to show unforgiveness dishonors Christ's sacrifice to sin. These kind of reminders will help us to walk worthily because walking worthily doesn't come naturally. We have the right software to execute these commands, but we have outdated hardware to implement them. Yet God is patient. After all, it was his design to have instantaneous justification with ongoing sanctification. I suspect that most of us can readily think of areas that need continued refining and pruning, And if you're not sure what needs refining and pruning in your mind, then ask God to show you. And that's a prayer he'll be quick to answer. Allow the Holy Spirit to apply truth to your life. So as we close, there may be some here that are still wearing the same old garments. Perhaps they're dirty, but they're comfortable, and they're familiar, and they fit well. But there may be some here who are still dead in their sins, calloused and hardened. And I pray that God would open the eyes of your heart to see your need from him that his mercy and that the grace of Jesus, that you would see this and you would see the glory of the truth of the gospel for the very first time. And perhaps there's some where your sin is vividly before you and you're tired of being enslaved to sin with that love-hate relationship, being addicted to temporary excitement, but then permanent futility. And so if that's you, then trust in Jesus to save you, set you free. He came for that purpose, that you may have life and have it abundantly to take off the old garments, stained by sin and enslavement to temporary pleasures, and put on the new spotless garments that belong to Jesus, to the King of Kings. You can be welcomed into his family, even today. Just a commitment between you and God alone. And for those who are trusting in Jesus, let us not forget who we truly are. 
Remember that you are no longer in bondage to sin. Victory can be yours, but it's not automatic. Pursue the worthy walk by learning Christ, aligning your behavior, and renewing your mind. Do we still have time for a worship song? I know I had my technical difficulties. We'll cancel. Okay. All right, so please stand with me as we close in prayer. Dear Jesus, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you are patient with us. We know that renewing our minds is a two-step forward, one-step back process at times, and yet you are there to walk with us the whole way. So help us to give you the honor that you deserve, and often that's just from a broken heart, a grateful heart, and we give that to you this morning. Amen.